0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org.
1: All the girls are complicated. of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Klooster. Today, or this evening, we're talking about the last of the great science fiction heroines, Sarah Connor. So far, Christina and I have talked about Leia Organa and Ellen Ripley. We finally come to Christina's favorite, Sarah Connor, who I must admit is pretty amazing despite having an H on the end of her name. Sarah Connor appears in multiple movies in the Terminator franchise, but like when we talked about Ellen Ripley we will be focusing on the first two movies only. Both Terminator movies that we're going to be talking about were directed by James Cameron. The first Terminator was released in 1984, and Terminator 2, or T2 as it's frequently called, was released in 1991 but takes place in 1995, ten years after the first. These movies are filled with action, suspense, and a lot of nudity that I completely forgot about, honestly, until I was rewatching them. But, however before we really settle into our topics, let's introduce ourselves. Christina, please go first.
2: Sure. Uh Christina Bieber-Lake. I've uh, been teaching English at Wheaton College here in Illinois for 20 years. This is my 21st year, and my famed acclaim with regard to this episode is that Terminator 2 is my all-time favorite movie, so that's pretty high up there.
1: Awesome. What about you, Blake?
0: Hi, my name is Blake Miller. Uh, Terminator 2 is not my favorite movie, but I'm a guy, and in 1991 I was like six or seven years old, so uh, it definitely has a special place in my heart. Uh, I have a master's degree in divinity from the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. I'm an ordained reverend in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and I'm currently working as a hospital chaplain in Greenville, South Carolina, living with my wife here
1: wonderful and this is my first time recording with Blake um, my name is Sarah Klooster, and I'm a librarian and I am living and researching in Abilene Texas just about a mile away from where Blake uh, got his graduate degree
0: it, I'd say go wildcats but that would make it sound like a much bigger like I'm a much bigger sports fan than I am so yeah
1: <laughs> well um, let's do a quick plot overview Terminator and the franchise is incredibly familiar to most of y'all. It's probably kind of like if we were trying to explain like, Hey, this is what star Wars is, but just to give people a couple of references, um, Christina, why don't you give us a brief overview?
2: It's really funny because I've been trying to think about who would be listening to this that might not know anything about Terminator. And I couldn't think of a single person who would. So this should be a familiar scene um, to everybody listening, but if it just so happens that you're listening to this and you have no clue about why you should, you know, watch these films, just bear with us. The plot is seems really strange, but it actually produces a lot of interesting opportunities for discussion. So it's the future. The machines have taken over the world because they, you know, they do. This is what machines do apparently in, in most science fiction films. And because they've taken over the world, They um, have to try to eliminate the other human vestiges that are trying to fight back. So because there's a human resistance to their taking over the world, they send back a machine back in time to try to take out the mother of the future leader of the resistance, the human resistance. His name is John Connor. And, of course, that mother is Sarah Connor. And that's the whole plot of the first Terminator film. And then the second Terminator film is that they try to send somebody back in time to take out the son, John Connor. And on it goes in various permutations throughout the Terminator franchise. But as Sarah mentioned, we're really talking about Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, which are the the mainstays of the franchise. So I'll just keep it simple for right now, and we'll get into details as we go.
1: Awesome. Okay, so Blake, can you tell us a little bit about the initial like critical and popular opinions for when these movies were first released?
0: Sure. Um, I think they were both re- very well received on a popular level. Um, obviously, we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger in his most iconic role, um, so people really just loved uh, Schwarzenegger being Schwarzenegger and being this enormous mountain of a man who could carry off this great physical presence. Yeah. Um, on a critical level, Uh, the first movie was received very well by a lot of critics who said it, you know, did everything it was supposed to do. Right. Of course it was received as a sort of unabashed action film. Uh, I think, uh, I I read a review, uh, a blurb, a quick blurb from the Wikipedia from uh, the Orange Coast magazine says it's like a streamlined, dirty, hairy movie. No exposition at all, just guns, guns and more guns, which is kind of funny because I think it did have plenty of exposition and a great plot to go along with the guns. But, you know, people are going to take from it what they will. Other people thought the first movie uh, was more of a B movie and kind of, you know, sort of relegated to that. Kind of been, Uh, whereas the second movie came out, and not only do we get Arnold back, we get a strong female character in Sarah Connor, we get groundbreaking special effects with the T1000, but we've got uh, you know critical acclaim. Everybody's saying this movie is doing exactly what it's trying to do. um, You know. Perfectly, almost. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four. And he said, Schwarzenegger's genius as a movie star is to find roles that build on rather than undermine his physical and vocal characteristics, which I completely agree with. So, of course, um, the second movie especially is considered one of the greatest action movies of all time.
2: And it is. (laughs) I just have to point, I just have to give a little bit of my history with these films. Um, because when Terminator one came out, I was in high school. I'm the oldster of the bunch here and I didn't see it because I, I thought it was a horror film. And I remember my family watching it on their VCR, you know, at one point and, I they invited me to come into the family room and watch it, and it just freaked me out. I like, this I, – because I, could, I couldn't do horror at that time, as Sarah knows, when we were talking about Alien. When Alien came out, it freaked me out. And and so it was only later that I could watch it. And then I realized later it wasn't really a horror film. But then when Terminator 2 came out in 1991, I had just graduated from high school – or uh, from college, and um, I was starting grad school, but I hadn't seen the film because I was in college and busy. And one of my friends in grad school said, "You have to see this film," and I was like, "What?" And and I saw it, and immediately was just like, "This is this is the film of this is the favorite film I have ever seen," and I loved James Cameron and everything that he was doing. And then, of course, I went back at that point and watched the first Terminator. So Terminator 2 has a lot that's special about it and I hope we can get into what's what's really unique about this film as we go forward.
1: Awesome. So we are going to end up talking about Terminator Arnie, the character of John Connor, but we let's start out, start out with Sarah Connor who is one of the triumvirate is that the right word to use for basically like our three awesome Science fiction heroines.
2: Um, I would go with that, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, like, Ellen Ripley, who is in actual sci-fi. Leia Organa, who is really in, like, a fantasy... Is in a fantasy world, but... Um, and then, obviously, Sarah Connor. So, how does Sarah kind of change from T1 to T2? Because, honestly, in T1, she's kind of like just this vessel, right? That... We only care about her because she has this relationship that she will be the mother of a man, right? Like that—that's mm-hmm. the only reason we re- that the only reason anybody cares about her in the first one. Um, yeah. And so, Christina, I was also going to ask. Um, so, how is she co- supposed to be coded for 1984? I can't really tell because <laughs> of like the 80s fashion. Is she it's supposed to be the Is she supposed to be a girl next door? Like she's obviously contrasted with her roommate, who is supposed to be kind of has that, like, oh, well, she's this wild girl because, you know, she has sex. And so she's obviously contrasted with the roommate, but I, I can't quite tell if she's supposed to be really virginal, is she supposed to be girl next door, that kind of
2: thing. It's, it's girl next door. It's like the typical, head, you know, feathered haircut kind of thing. Um, she's a waitress, right? She's not, to me, James Cameron, who, by the way, was in a relationship, you know, with Linda Hamilton at the time, which I think is kind of funny and weird and interesting, Right. Um, that she's supposed to be the kind of normal, non-leader, not, not much to be expected of her woman. And so th- the fact that Terminator 1 just kind of deals with her in that role and that she's going to be the mother of this great leader and you don't see her being to change very much in that film – makes Terminator 2 that much more interesting when she completely mobilizes. Now, Blake, I want to ask you what you think, because once I start talking, you won't get in a word edgewise, so what do (laughs) you think about how she changes it there?
0: Well, you know, I don't want to sort of oversell her helplessness in the beginning of the movie, but there is a sort of sense that uh, you know, between the fact that she is the target of of one of the male characters, the Terminator, and you know the protect um, the protection person of the other, I, it kind of reminds me of a quote I heard a long time ago that says something like, "In the game of patriarchy, women are not the opposing team, they're the ball." And she does almost get moved around like a football towards the end zone uh, you know, for the first two thirds of the first movie. But it's really great to see her um, slowly get more resilience and more agency to the point where it becomes simply her versus the Terminator at the end. And she becomes aggressive and is able to uh, defend herself when nobody else is there to defend her. So that's just a really great thing to see. And of course we get the 10 year time skip. And I know obviously You can only devote so many minutes to to any part of action. We see uh, a very realistic portrayal of what, you know, the events of Terminator 1 would do to a person. She is very clearly traumatized in Terminator 2. She, you know, has sort of reoriented her entire life around this new mission. And of course it seems yes. crazy to other people. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's put her at odds with society at large. And which means that she's going to be sort of exiled and cordoned off from society. And at the same time, she has made herself hyper capable in order to defend herself, almost kind of got an overtone of, you know, a woman who has been assaulted and it is now, uh, making sure that this never happens again, sort of thing. So it's a very, uh, interesting, um, Comparison And I really can't think of anybody, any woman, uh, any female character in just two films or maybe even any male character who so completely goes from uh, incapable in a sort of maybe martial or combat sense to uh, very hyper capable in in the second end of the second film. So it's very interesting to see.
2: Yeah,
1: well, that's I, an excellent point. Go ahead, Sarah. Okay. She's kind of just like Che Guevara
2: of Soccer Moms, right? Like. Mm.
1: And the thing that's also interesting is that, like, you can really tell um, in T two where she has decided that she's like enough of this fate crap. I, which we'll talk about a bit in a little bit, like I, she is going to change fate. Right? She is going like she. This is. I'm going to kill Miles Dyson. She doesn't mm-hmm. care that he's innocent. He doesn't care that he has no idea what he's going to unleash. Doesn't ca- She is. She becomes this thing that traumatized her, right? She kind of becomes this monster, right? Mm-hmm. Where she's go- like, she'll kill her his kid, she'll kill his wife, she'll ki- like she d- she doesn't mm-hmm. care because she because is she's trying. Seen
2: the future, yeah, she knows tr- what it looks like. Yeah,
1: she's trying to prevent this apocalypse, and you also see a little bit that like. In her interactions as an actual mother with John, um, which we don't even get to, like basically the second half of T two, because the first half of T two, they're they're separated. Right? She has been institutionalized, and her son John has been placed in a foster home.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I will have to say, one, it seems like she's been in the um, the uh, state hospital there for a while, and John apparently oh, yes. picked up quite a lot. But you know, when he's like seven. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a long time to, to be institutionalized, Yeah, right? And, and she really, at that time, has a lot of time to think and plan. And that's what she does. And I got to say, you guys need to know, I had a visceral response to this film because I was around the same age as the character. And so when she's in there and she's locked up and she's put up her bed and she's doing the pull-ups, I related to that. I was like, this is a woman who knows what she needs to do. She is going to do everything she can, even though she's locked up, to make sure she's physically strong and and knows exactly what to do. So that when Arnold comes back on the scene, which is, of course, the good Terminator, but we don't know that right at the beginning of Terminator 2 because Arnold was a bad Terminator before, she she knows she's got to escape. So she takes the paperclip in her mouth, right, spits it out, gets out of the restraints, just goes to town on that loser guy who's got her locked up in there it's an amazing scene. Um, she's ready. And then what we learn from hearing from the son, from John Connor talking about it, is that she has pretty much shacked up with all these different men in all these different places to learn everything that she can learn from them. It was quite obvious she didn't really care about relationships. It was just, what can I learn from you to be ready for the apocalypse?
1: Yeah, and you you kind of see a little bit like when John first gets there, and one obviously uh, to kind of free her from the state hospital. I mean, obviously, again, she's very concerned when she sees Arnold, but like a little bit after that, she's interacting with John, and you see her, you you see her kind of not interacting with John as a mother, but like he is this symbol, right? She knows that he is this symbol, and he is going to be important for the future, and so you kind of see her kind of like pushing pushing in terms of like no you need to do this to become great not in a maternal sense but in a like like a mentor like like a mentor like you need to be prepared and not in that kind of nice nurturing way mm-hmm. that we would be like oh you haven't seen your son in like years at least mm-hmm. and her first thought is like you know you need to do this you need to be ready you, and she she's really pushing him to ready him to be that Mm-hmm. Symbol, and it's interesting because, you know, she doesn't have any of these skills, and she is kind of, you know, she's a vessel essentially in the first movie, right? Like she, you will eventually give birth to a man who we are going to care about.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, at the end, though, she does, you know, take care of the Terminator. So, oh. like was saying, she does oh, yeah, she, him out. Yeah, she does.
1: But like the reason we know who she is in the beginning says she will be the mother of this this individual. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is like she eventually is able. Like in the second movie, you can really tell that obviously she has taken this to heart. Just like we yes. said, that this is that, that she is she's a true believer, right, in this mm-hmm. world ending kind of
2: well because vision she's seen that she it, right. that she sees. It, it, the, the the psychiatrist who is just hilarious right that guy I can't remember his name but it's so funny he doesn't believe anything that she's saying and then he finally sees the Terminator for himself and he just freaks out you know that guy they've made jokes about him in all of the movies I can't remember his name you know what I'm talking about the psychiatrist and yeah. uh but but she knows and it what's interesting to me is that it kind of amps up the general and natural protectiveness that mothers have for their children. Cause I I don't know any mother who wouldn't just completely sacrifice herself just to have her child live. Right. So this takes that, but amps it up. Like not only am I willing to completely sacrifice myself for my son, for my child, but this man is also going to be the leader of the resistance who is going to potentially save other children from being killed you know and so it's like everything amped up
1: so i i guess i have a general question um is she the main character of t2 like or is arnold
2: see in my opinion she is but everybody's gonna say arnold right because there's all the funny bits, you know, the typical tropes that you get in the um, Terminator films, right? Like the clothing thing where he goes into the bar and give me your clothes and all that. And, and everybody is watching these films to watch Arnold. I was watching these films to watch her. She's the, inter- she's the focal point from my perspective because she yeah. is the one that mobilizes. She is the one who is trying to change the future She is the one who is making all of the major decisions and that scene when she goes to take out Dyson and his house and she, she faces her own uh, sort of like, oh my goodness, if I kill him, then I am no better than the machines. That moment is just so pivotal in the whole film. And, you know, yeah, John is the one who says like, mom, you can't do this, but it's really her recognizing I can't do this. And then she's got this great speech. And I'm not going to lie. I, I've done this in skits. <laughs> I've played her for Halloween. This was before cosplay was a word. Okay. Just saying. And that whole scene where she's like ready to blow them away. And she's like, you man, you think you're so creative. You don't know what it's like to create a life, to feel it growing inside of you. All you know is death <laughs> and destruction. <laughs> it's mom, such a great scene. Yeah, mom. We need a stop. little more. Yeah. We need Construct to be more constructive. It. What's, <laughs> That's what exactly it right. That's exactly what he says. Yeah. We need to be more constructive here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you like that scene too, Emily. Well, it works well. I mean, you know, like I said, I was about six or seven when it came out uh, or when I saw it. So um, for me, John was a few years older than me. He was cooler than me. He could, you know, get money out of an ATM and go blow it in the (laughs) arcades, which was the like if the movie had been 30 minutes long and it ended with him playing games in the arcade, it would have been a great movie, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and of course, obviously, for a young kid, you know, the one who's shooting the face off of a T-1000 and saying hasta la vista, baby, that's pretty cool, too. But like you said, you know, uh, she begins the movie with her own narration. She ends the movie with her own narration. Yes. And it's really a lot about uh, her sense of coming to um, sort of figure out w- How am I going to fight this battle? How am I going to carry out this mission of my life? Um, Am I going to, you know, just to destroy everything that might pose a threat to what I want and and what I need to see happen? Or am I going to try not just win, but sort of win the right way? Um, And that that to me has a lot to do with I I like the fact that it's really difficult to say who is the main character and who learns the most or grows the most Mm -hmm. um, through the series and through this uh, T2.
2: Because you could argue that that Arnold, the Terminator, is the one that grows the most, right? Learns not right. to kill people, gets trained in that direction. And, and she, as Sarah Connor, has to appreciate the fact that this machine can actually grow and learn. And, yeah. and by the way, I know we're not supposed to be talking about dark fate, but these themes <laughs> get even amped up so much more in that movie. And it's so interesting the way that that happens and the way they turn on its head, this whole idea of you're incubating You know, the next – savior of the human race all of that becomes um really significant in dark fate and i just have to say with regard to that and i'm not going to talk about dark fate but the fact that james cameron is the one who did that was to me um just a, that's the move that you want to see you know because yeah. he is he is the reason why uh, terminator 2 in particular was so successful
0: i agree yeah
2: and, uh, you know, there's a lot. I mean, I have f- friends in the industry, and he was, he's apparently quite a hard driver, like one of these kind of producers <laughs> who makes people stay up all night on the sets and really gets it right. And he is old school when it comes to effects. So it's not this CGI stuff. It's like, let's get a truck out there and really. Bash up. it up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and it makes a difference in watching Terminator Two. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this film, and the effects are really incredible. I'm sorry, I digress a little bit from Sarah Connor, but I just think it's it's something that makes the film really unique and watchable.
0: I well, you can agree. tell that it's coming from you know a a really intellectual place and and him really sort of understanding the narrative that he wants to tell Sarah, how would you uh, add to that?
1: Um, I completely agree. I think the, the effects stand up incredibly well, which is what happens when you use practical effects. I mean, you look at star Wars now, the original star (laughs) Wars before it got like super tinkered with and ruined by George Lucas, but that's a topic that we've discussed on another podcast. Um, and those practical effects stand up. They look really good. Um, and so in the first and second one, you know, the Terminator is terrifying. He's terrifying when he's Arnold because, like y'all said, he's this big Hulk. hulk man. And it's the perfect role, especially because it helps him use his his kind of limited amount of English. Um, and he, like, he is incredibly intimidating. Um to me, I think one of the scariest moments in the movies is when Sarah is, she's trying to be safe, right? She's doing what, she she did what she was supposed to, she called the police, she's checking on her roommate, she's doing all these things to be safe, right? Because she, like, she would have been better off if she hadn't called to try to check in on her roommate, right? Who, unfortunately, right. is already dead, but she's trying to be good, uh, let her know, and so now, okay, now the Terminator knows where to find her. And so she's... She's trying to be safe. She's doing what she's told, and she's still found. She's in public. There's nothing she can do. And you see the like the 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 red um, laser mark, like sight point on her, mm-hmm. and you're just mm-hmm. like, even now when I watch it, I have this sense of like dread of like every time, like, <gasps> like how could anything? Because obviously the Terminator doesn't care if he kills all of them, right? He's mm-hmm. you know he's not some secret assassin who's like, oh, well, I can't let them know about. My secret shady organization. Like he would take out the entire population of, he'd kill everyone. Cause yeah, that's what he does. That's what he is in the that's first it. movie. Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: And so knowing that um, is, you know, and he's being indiscriminate. He's killed two other people. He goes, he kills the roommate. And so that, that moment when you see the, the, the little uh, laser dot on her head, it just, to me, I, yes. I have that since every single time of dread. And, after you know, afterwards they keep uh, emphasizing. Yes, he is a cyborg. He is a cyborg, um, cybernetic organism. He is not a robot. But what you end up but with he's is a like, robot.
2: He, yeah. <laughs> By definition, he is. But oh anyway. yeah, I digress.
1: Um, and what they end up saying, uh, what you end up seeing, is like he gets stripped down of all of his humanity, of like all of the veneer, right at the end, and he really is just the machine. Yes. Like, that still mm-hmm. looks amazing. That still looks yeah. incredibly good because it's practical effects. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's any movie that's going to really, like, uh, be uh, really, really own those practical effects, to me, it's always going to be more enjoyable to watch. Yeah.
2: yeah. And Sarah, when you were talking, I was thinking about Sarah without an H. I was thinking about how the thing that's so special about Sarah Connor is that she is really smart, but she learns so quickly, right? She adapts. She's flexible. She's just like, oh, this is is the new reality. I better change and find out what I need to do, right? She cannot afford to not be smart and not be adjusting to the reality as she learns. And that's consistent in all of the The Terminator movies movies that she appears. And even in the Sarah Connor series, I don't know if you guys saw that, that mm-hmm. was running for a while. You know, her intelligence is kind of a central issue there. Her ability to adapt, her ability to, to expect something different to come out of this, right? Like, that's what they were before, but what are they going to be now? And, right. and, you know, that's really a really well-drawn character. And, and thinking about her in that mental institution, she could give up, but instead she's learning, growing, changing, adapting,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, she she really never uh, loses the sense that there can be a way for her to succeed. Right. Um, And I really think that like you were talking about that, that first laser sight in the the public place, um, you know, I really believe that if Kyle Reese hadn't been there, she might have frozen and just Mm -hmm. let herself be killed. But in the small span of time that we see her for that first movie, she goes from that person to somebody who can run away effectively from, you know, the certain death that is the Terminator, trap it and, you know, eventually eliminate the threat, terminate the threat. Yeah, you're
2: terminated effort. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah. that's
2: that's a great final line.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's so a really nice sort of full circle, great uh, full arc, and just a, a great way to to show somebody um, standing up and, and and gaining what they need in order to succeed in, in their mission of, in this case, survival.
2: Yeah, and it's some, the feminist part of this, to my mind, is the fact that women typically, you know, when push comes to shove and they are just thrown against the wall There's that's when the strength kind of comes out, particularly when it involves their own children, but not just their own children, It's also all children, because to me, all of the films trade on that image of the children who are playing at the playground, you know, and they get burned up by the nuclear bomb and she's watching from, you know, the uh, from the outside chain link fence. fence, Right. Mm. And that that image gets repeated in several of the films where she's just like, we can't let this happen. This is children who get killed by yeah. the nuclear bomb. And that just, just motivates her and, and activates her. And yeah, she's just, you know, I'm not going to so let this happen.
0: Yeah, to hear you say that, it's funny because it makes me think, you know, James Cameron could have had her dream of merely her own son dying. Oh, yeah, And, and no. just had it always be about, I just have to save this child. But she has really a heart for the whole world. She, she really does. wants to save three billion people. She knows how big the stakes are. And her life is forfeit to that goal, which exactly. is, you know, is And she really considers
2: incredible. herself sacrificable to that goal. So it's both, you know, John living, but John being the leader of the resistance, like you have got to stay alive because we have to change this in the future. If we don't, we are sunk as as a race, you know, as a human human existence. And it's incredible. Yeah,
0: Um, we're kind of. I think we've, we've saved some space for this towards the end, but I think this is a pretty good place to drop it in. I've, I'm thinking about, you know, what are the Christian allegories you yes. can make for this, for this film? And the obvious one is, you know, Mother Mary, um, or, you know, either John is Jesus, or I've even thought maybe you could well, say Jay-C. Sarah is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not, <laughs> subtle. Um, but not that's okay. subtle. Um, but you know, uh, or even Sarah Connor is Jesus and she's working to, uh, to give John, who is like a stand-in for the the Christian person, the ability to go ahead and and go forward and have a chance by perhaps her own sacrifice. But really what I really think about, um, for me, the most captivating comparison would be uh, that she is sort of a religious zealot and a powerful um, evangelist because she learns of this truth about the world kind of under – exactly, underneath the sort of societal surface, it, it gives her this mission that she needs to fulfill. It's all important to her. She believes that if she doesn't fulfill this mission, terrible things can happen for her and the people who she cares about. And and it's so important that she doesn't care even that society thinks she's crazy for believing these things. And so to me, she's the Apostle Paul, you know, yeah, who says, I don't John care what the Baptist. happens. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I must decrease and John and John Connor must increase. Yeah. Yes.
2: And that's and a good she, way of you know that's right. Like she will stand aside and let that take place. She's willing to take that subservient role, but mm-hmm. only because the, the greater mission, the vision, is uh, in sight, you know. Yeah. Um and it, that's also played up in the in uh, the in the dark fate film so i just can't wait for you guys to see it and so we can talk <laughs> about it because um you know and it's like completing that plot of of her being consistent with that same role even though the roles change around right like right. who's who's the actual uh, savior the future savior of the human race but but yeah it, it goes to to saying that if you see that and you see it clearly then what are you going to do right exactly yeah
1: yeah, I you definitely see that um, Sarah has this, like, zeal of an evangelist. Yes. And I think that she she is so, and she's so committed that she is unable to lie, even if it would benefit her, right? She's so clear about this is the coming apocalypse that she's trying to warn us all about, that she can't, well. that she, she refuses to lie, right? So mm-hmm. even though... You know they're doing the interviews with, like, well, we're trying to see if you're crazy. This kind of, you know, how are you doing? And so she's trying to have this great behavior, mm-hmm. but she can't not lie, right? She, she, yeah, or she, she does.
2: She, she tries to, and she's like, I'm doing better, and you know, yeah, I'm just she can't, I can see my yeah, son. She
1: can't. She can't. She can't and won't say, no, I really made it all up. The medication no. has helped. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh knows. my gosh, and y'all, y'all were so right. Like, she can't do that. Even though that might be the quote-unquote, like, air quote that you can't see because we're not a visual medium, uh, smart thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. She she can't do it. She can't lie about this truth that she is, like, that she knows of, right?
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. You might even, I mean, it's almost like the one misstep of the sequel uh, to maybe somebody on the front on their first viewing. You know, why is she telling these people this thing that's going to happen, that they there's no way for them to know it, you know, and are arguably no reason for them to believe it. Um, but I like the way you put it is if she's an evangelist and if she's just so captivated by this truth and to her, it has worked in her and sort of changed who she is and who she Ooh. wants to be, then There's almost a sense of, well, why wouldn't it work for anybody else? And she becomes that sort of prophet saying, you know, I'll I'll tell this to everybody, even if it makes me look crazy, because I might just save a few by getting them ready to prepare that sort of thing. Yeah.
2: But she gets smart, too. That's the thing, right? She refuses to tell a lie, but she keeps quiet. Like when they start showing her the pictures of Arnold there and with his sunglasses, she knows that they're not going to let her out. She doesn't play along. So she plays along. Right. So exactly. she can steal that little paper clip and get out of there. It's so great. Yeah. You can, you can see her just go into that mental space of this. This is the moment I have to get out. What am I need? What do I need to do? Uh-huh. And I just admire that because how few female characters in Hollywood are that, that smart. Like Sarah, you and I know both, you know, we talked about Riley. She's like that, right? Like, she mobilizes and gets smart, but that takes a lot of self presence in that moment when you're freaked out and you know your son's life is in danger. To just shut down and be like, mm, "You know, I gotta, I gotta get away out of here." Yeah.
1: Also, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, I don't know how you say his name, but Michael. Michael Bay. Michael Bay. yeah Yeah, who plays Kyle Reese? And this is also the. Uh, the, uh, basically,
2: the father figure character, I forget his name, in um, Aliens. So, oh, is that right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, he's Corporal Hicks, I think. Oh, that, yeah,
2: that's oh. his name, Hicks. Yeah, that's so funny. Huh. That's interesting. I didn't put that together. Yeah, I've seen Terminator 1, you know, the first film so few times compared to T2. So everything <laughs> in T2 just kind of overrides T1. But right. um, yeah, that's interesting.
1: So, uh, I have a question that the thing that I think of every time I see these movies, and maybe no one else does because they didn't take, they didn't go to a school that made them take an excessive amount of classics courses. Um, Yay, Baylor. And so, what does this movie say about the idea of Fate, capital F Fate? Um, Whenever I see it and I watch him, I just kind of, I see all these similarities to like basically... Greek, um, Greek myth, Greek tragedy, Greek literature. I took a lot of classics courses, but it's been a long time. So all of the... Uh, everything that is incorrect is a reflection on me and not my uh, superior uh, teachers. Because I'm watching this, and I see that, like, it keeps making me think of Oedipus, and then not in the Oedipus complex kind of way, but the idea that we... With Oedipus, we have this Delphic prophecy, right? That he's going to kill his father and marry his mother. And so what do they do? Okay, we're going to send him away. And so he gets sent away to, um, he gets sent away from Thebes to a different city. And then once he's there, then he, um, he learns about the prophecy, right? And so he's like, oh, well, these are my parents, so I have to leave. So he goes and he kills his father on his way to Thebes and he marries his mother. And so the very act of receiving the prophecy, basically, and, acting on it is the thing that sets it in motion to make it come true right and so this idea that there would be no john connor if they hadn't sent the terminator back to kill his mother right
0: yeah and
1: so there's this very heavy play on that and maybe i'm maybe i'm reaching a little bit too much but the very act of trying to prevent this prophecy is the thing that ends up ensuring that it's actually fulfilled Mm -hmm. and i just i think that's really interesting because You don't get that in some of the other uh, more timey whiny time travel (laughs) um, narratives, right? That, like, this is really a very different thing and it actively, super actively, like, that's the thing in Back to the Future, right? He goes back, his father punches one dude and is, like, suddenly a different person for the rest of his life and it actively Mm. changes the future, right? Rather than this, like, this ensures kind of, like, that the future actually ends up happening,
0: yeah, it's a closed-loop time paradox kind of thing, right?
1: I probably... <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you, then can you only do what you were already going to do, yeah. or if, it, if this is the way it was, it's the way it would be, that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah,
1: and then you also have, at least to me in the second movie, you very much have, I kept thinking of, you have Sarah, Sarah as um, also Cassandra, this like mad like prophetess that nobody Ooh. believes and is destined to... Every time she speaks truth, she's destined for people to think that she's lying, and she's seeing these like apocalyptic visions, that kind of thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I see why you're saying that, but it's also true that the films ultimately are about that there is no fate but what we make, right? I mean, that's the whole theme of Terminator 2 and then all the other Terminator films is that you do have a chance to break out of it. Like the Greek version of fate was just like, no matter what you did, you ended up in that same situation. These are, they're different, right? And of course it doesn't make any sense, right? Because (laughs) as John says, it messes with your head, right? Right. Like all of these things would change other things in the future, but every single film, eventually like there's the reality that you've changed this timeline, right? Um, we did this and now that is not happening anymore we thought the world was going to end in 1997 well it didn't right so so it's not purely just like fate's win
0: right I, I kind of seem it seems to me like the first one um, really does seem to it, it doesn't yes. pay a lot of attention to the idea that you can change the fate right of yes. course you, you know it's never really expressed that you um, the Sarah Connor that uh, Michael Baines' character would have heard about, you know, was. A hyper capable person who had prepared, but there's really nothing that that precludes that possibility. But yeah, the second uh, the second film really seems to want to say this can be stopped, this can be changed. Um, you know, they go to Cyberdyne, they destroy it, they destroy the chip, they destroy the arm, and even the original planned ending for T two was a flash forward into the future where um, you know Sarah Connor is in her like 60s and her son John is a U.S. senator and Washington mm-hmm. D.C is great with these big uh you know Mm -hmm. new new uh buildings built up around it and it like it's absolutely you know a foregone it's it's been accomplished that the the skynet future is not going to happen which of Mm -hmm. course um means you don't get to have any terminator 3 or anything like that so i guess good news that it didn't didn't make the final cut um but,
2: well, but see, but that's the thing. Anytime you make a new Terminator film, all you have to do is just change something slightly
0: exactly, <laughs> and, and yeah. you're
2: fine, right? But, right. you know, Dark Fate begins with this sort of like, well, we stopped this from happening. You know, we stopped the apocalypse from happening. Um, and I'm not going to tell you anything else to spoil it, but it was like the timeline did change because yeah. of what they did in the previous films, you know? yeah. So, so clearly they've been committed to that, that idea. Right.
0: I think I was uh, reading an article in like Entertainment Weekly or something, and it was it was doing a sort of plot rundown. I think maybe it was the plot rundown of the first three movies before Terminator Salvation, the fourth one came out. And there was a line in it that said, really, all that matters is no matter what happens in time or space or what." Uh, choices people choose in the future there will inevitably be killer robots so oh, yeah
2: yeah that, that's the only thing that's consistent they, they change <laughs> names like it's not going to be skynet anymore it's going to be something else but it's still going to be computers and artificial intelligence for whatever reason just deciding Death, to kill all humanity killer
0: robots yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> exactly which i mean I, I do a lot of writing and research about technology and artificial intelligence so it's always funny to me in these films how they're just always evil how yeah. you know in uh Space Odyssey what you know it's just 2001, 2001. right yeah How? it's just all it, all are bad well i think it's
1: interesting because one of the things that we like that we see uh, in this particular movie and i i don't think you necessarily see it in all of sci- in all of sci-fi that very much in the terminator it is the thing, the technology we have created to keep us safe has somehow been turned against us, right? Yes, right, um, right. and that's not present. It, and that's a strong theme in many, in a lot of science fiction. But it is by no means the only theme. And so,
2: even well, it's, the, it's the Sentinels, right? Like in, in X Men, it's like we've created these things to protect us, and then we can't control them.
0: And even, especially in their case, it's a matter of, well, the best way to protect humanity is to control it completely, right? So it's, you know, hoisted by our own petard kind of situation. Precisely.
1: But even in, in like, so in the first one you have just these small scenes of technology getting in the way of, like, safety. And the um, you have the roommate basically being killed because she can't hear, right? She can't hear that there's anything in there to escape, so she basically kind of gets slaughtered because she has headphones on, right? She's listening to music. (laughs) Um, You have um, Sarah calling in to check, to be like, hey, I want you to be safe. That's how the Terminator actually learns where she is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, and also, it just strikes me as one, so much easier, man, it was much easier to go off the grid in the 1980s.
2: (laughs) It was like there was no grid at all. Oh my goodness, was it ever. Since you guys were not really <laughs> conscious at that time, I can tell you, yes, it's a completely different situation.
0: If they if they made the Terminator these days, it wouldn't be like her Walkman, it'd be some kind of phone app that she was too busy, you know, getting her daily reward from Candy Crush to, to look Precise. up and see the laser sight. On her yeah, head and she something. wouldn't
1: even have, they wouldn't even have to have headphones on, she would just be like, she'd be so busy taking selfies that like she couldn't <laughs> even like notice because she's... Mm. And I think one of the things I don't want us to forget is how incredibly young she's supposed to be in the first movie. She's supposed to be oh, 19, yes. um, which is incredibly young, and which means in the second movie she's supposed to be 29, which I feel incredibly old knowing that 29 seems young to me now.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. And, so,
1: and so this idea that, like, she is, she is still a young woman.
2: Yes, very young. And that's part, part of her mobilization, right? Like, I'm it, she turns her body into a weapon as much as she possibly can, mm. um, which I thought was really. I, I just have to tell you the truth. I have a picture of you know Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor where I work out. So, you know, not gonna lie.
0: <laughs> Goals. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: She has big. She has a uh, literal and metaphorical big guns in the second yes, movie. She
2: does, and yeah. I love it. <laughs> No, she's strong. She's committed, um, smart, all the things that you're, that you want in your female hero, you know?
1: Yeah, she, um, she's, and she's really different than some of the other female, the previous female heroes we've talked about, you know, she's, you know, Leia for all is this kind of has this wonderful, um, she's a wonderful diplomat, right? She can kind of but Leia is not a warrior, right? Leia is no. a commander, but she's not a warrior. She's this kind of diplomat. She's, she's really good at that kind of thing. And Ripley is a very reluctant warrior. Like, she can do it, but it's not a right. thing that she's, like, trading for. She's much more reluctant into her role um, than Sarah Connor is, even though yeah. they both, even though the second movie, their second movies, which were both directed by James Cameron, um are about like we have to save the kid.
0: Yeah. She's not heading off into combat as 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 forcefully as Sarah Connor is, but mm-hmm. Sarah Connor will will mess you up if you, you know, get in the way of her goals. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but they both have that but they both have that very strong mama bear vibe in their second movies.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: Ripley started out I think at a more capable level than Sarah did. Like like Ripley just started
2: out at a slightly higher level. Yeah, she's already a leader on the ship, right? Um, not a waitress somewhere, right? Um in LA right. or
0: whatever. Yeah. I think so. I heard somebody explain the plot of the first Alien is nobody listens to the smart woman who says we, we have to maintain quarantine protocol. And so oh, everybody yes. but the smart woman ends up dead. That,
2: that's <laughs> so. exactly what I said when we talked about it. <laughs> Talk yeah. Remember, Sarah. yeah. So yeah. no, like, oh, nobody, well.
1: ever, <laughs> nobody ever maintains quarantine protocol in any movie. It never happens because like, oh, no, this one time. And, you know, we're talking about quarantine protocol with, you know various issues going on in the world right now. But, yeah, no one ever actually maintains it.
2: Yeah, but the woman's like, hello, no. (laughs) Yeah. So. Yeah, and she basically,
1: she gets, and again, we and that has an evil cyborg in it. Man, we have all of these little connections we're making today.
0: It does. I guess they're,
1: do they call them cyborgs or androids?
0: This is android. Okay. Yeah, they're androids and alien.
1: Okay. So, we've been, we've been talking all about how Sarah is very awesome and everything. And we've been talking about like, we're heading towards an apocalypse. And our, our question is what do apocalyptic, why do these apocalyptic films appeal to us? But honestly, this is a pre-apocalyptic film, right? Like we see, we see glimpses of this at the beginning of each movie. We see like so many people have died that these like giant, like mechs, you know, like Mm -hmm. Gundam mechs or whatever, are like walking around on like just fields of human skulls like Mm -hmm. we've had that many battles that many people have died
2: (laughs) that's one of the tropes as well like the foot crushing crushing the skull yeah there's a lot of crushing imagery
1: Um, every single one yeah Yeah. there's a lot of imagery of things being crushed um if star wars has like limbs getting um like limbs being hacked off like Mm -mm. um this series is like technology just being crushed. You see headphones, you see toy trucks, like actual mm-hmm. real trucks. The Terminator, like everything is getting crushed. Um, but you you see this apocalyptic film, and so we're trying to prevent this apocalypse, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I don't know what why are these things so appealing for us? Like it makes sense to me in the, like the nineteen eighties of like we're at this kind of height of the Cold War. Nuclear, like this is this is a very very real threat. You know, Sarah's having a, has a real vision of this nuclear blast in which you know this thing that we were created that was supposed to be that we were thinking that you know it could never be used against us. So we were we were um, we were foolish in thinking that. And you know, this technology and this institution is supposed to protect us. They're used against us, and so it makes sense mm-hmm. in the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. I mean like what how how has the have these apocalyptic films have they changed in like how they're mm-hmm. being presented, do we think? Like why are we oh, still yeah, so definitely. incredibly like drawn to them?
0: Well, I think you know, an easy comparison to make is that um you know, in the cold war, what is the nature of the apocalypse? Uh technology um causes nuclear Uh, you know, Armageddon, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's obviously kind of trading on the fears of our time. Now, these days in the last 10 or so years, it's been quite a long time. We've had this and we might be moving slowly into something new. Um, it's been more like zombie apocalypses, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, some sort of cultural crisis or sociological or economic crisis creates, yeah, exactly. Um, you uh, means there's not enough food to go around or humanity itself is gonna kill ourselves through our, you know, selfish ambition, that kind of thing. And I hope I think I've I've got an inkling that we're moving towards more of a just plague stuff. I think they're making a new adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand coming out soon. And of course and that's a great some- novel. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Um, So I think it's really easy to use the apocalypse as a big time uh, metaphor. You know, whatever killed half of the world or all of the world is the thing that's currently killing us right now. And we need to do something to stop it Um, on a more juvenile, you might say, level. uh, The. The apocalypse is an easy way to sort of clear the board and kind of create a sandbox for your story to play in and you get to sort of rebuild the world however you want and put whatever rules you want so we've got like the hunger games you know where um, an apocalypse happens and we our our natural way of life is destroyed uh, and therefore we get to reorient society on extreme social and class based stratification or even the handmaid's tale a lot of people say the handmaid's tale doesn't make any Sense, you know, it would ne- we, nobody would ever be able to make that happen. But it's easy to forget that in the book, at least, um, I haven't seen the the, the uh, TV show, but in the book, it's it's noted that there was a, a sort of catastrophe in the human population and and the ability of births, yeah, yeah. environmental based infertility, which yeah. means the extreme scenario of a, a religious theocracy rising up becomes more. Uh, possible if it's the one solution to this problem that seems to work.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as as you were talking, Sarah, um, uh, asking this question, it occurred to me that Blake's exactly right. Like the whole reason why the Terminator film started out in the, in the 80s was this kind of fear of nuclear war, the Cold War, and then Terminator just as a franchise took off. So everything that came after that was just all related to retelling that story or stories around that story so that became its own thing but it's not necessarily representative of where we are right now in terms of post-apocalyptic films and you know like The Walking Dead or you know shows TV shows or Handmaid's Tale or whatever that deal with things after environmental crisis took place even The Road by Cormac McCarthy which is a book I teach a lot like we're more interested in the stuff that happens after the apocalypse than we are in the potential of the apocalypse and I have a lot of reasons or theories about why I think that's the case um, Blake's mentioned a few of them having to do with the, you know, the sort of like how are we treating our environment all that but I, I happen to think that the main reason why we're interested in them is because we are like a satiated culture we don't even remember the last time we missed a meal yeah. and you know it's just like what would be what would it be like what would it pull out of us to actually have to you know, rely on our own wits to survive. That's what I think the appeal of The Walking Dead was. At least it was for me. I've, I've liked that show. I liked it at the beginning more than I like it now. Um, <laughs> you, and um, you and everyone else. else. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually wrote down a note because I, uh, I read the first six or seven uh, trade paperbacks of The Walking Dead comic mm-hmm. book. Yeah, and it's it's rare for this to happen in on the back of every Walking Dead comic book or, or every trade paperback, where they usually in other. Uh, uh, collections would put sort of like a plot synopsis for these six issues or something. There's always the same epigraph, and it yes. says stuff like, uh, how many hours are in a day when you don't spend half of them watching television, or when's yes. the last time you had to work for something you really needed? And the last line is, in a world ruled by the dead, we are finally forced to start living. Start and that's living. what I think the the apocalypse is for a lot of people it's the biggest stakes and you know the goal is survival itself therefore mm-hmm. excitement is just part and parcel of, of you know it, how could that not be sort of thrilling in and of itself if right. you don't but, know yeah right what's gonna happen but it's next.
2: only it's only appealing as entertainment for people who do not have to endure it right oh, like yeah, if absolutely. we were you know if we were in that kind of situation nobody would want to watch that for entertainment well so. that
1: is completely true the thing that I always think of whenever I am generally generally forced to watch zombie movies by my husband, who is wonderful, but makes me oh, watch zombie Sarah, movies. Sarah,
2: come on! Um, you don't like Walking Dead, even the early parts.
1: I, I can I okay. There's something about the noise that they make when they're eating that okay, I just yeah, can't, get I, I can't get past. I can't get. I can hear that.
2: that. I can hear you.
1: Um and so. But for some of the other ones that I've watched, uh, I'm thinking uh, primarily of, I think, 28 days later, like, the thing that becomes scariest in a post-apocalyptic world are the people. Yeah. Because society, civilization, all of these, all these civilizing institutions, right, that we, that are good for us, that keep that, as I think as we would say as Christians, that would help keep that sinful, evil, selfish nature of ours in check. The, the apocalypse wipes those away.
2: Mm-hmm. And so you, you can Absolutely.
1: see you can see humanity at its absolute most raw with no civilizing influence.
2: Exactly. Um, and you find out who people are and what they're made of. And what oh, yeah. Happens. And, and
1: in 28 Days Later, the scariest thing to me are those military guys.
2: Oh, yeah. Like, that oh, is the
1: scariest part of that
2: movie. You know, what's really interesting about this whole conversation is that every time I watch a Terminator film, and I've watched them all, okay, I've seen every single variation. And I've seen a T2 number of times, as I mentioned, I, I'm always saying to my husband, you know, it's like, when are we going to get a Terminator film about this po- post-apocalyptic world? Because it seems like it's time. Like, aren't we more interested in that scenario now than the sort of like, how we get there scenario i mean at least right. i am i'd I really agree. like to see a film
1: that.
0: christina i actually have to tell you they did make terminator salvation but i'm not surprised you don't remember it
2: oh i do remember Terminator <laughs> salvation it wasn't very good and i i uh, recognize but that was not it that was not the kind of effort that i'm talking about yeah, oh, yeah i know what exactly. you're saying yeah yeah i did see that yeah
0: it that's is interesting effects, that they that the the specter of this future war it almost needs not to not to show up, and it needs to still be. I guess maybe that's sort of a, a part of the core the core of the Terminator is the hope true. that you know it's still preventable, right? And that's right. what we're really right. fighting for. Right. You know, is to not make that that horrid mistake that's still possible that's to make. That's true. And, and you can almost separate the good Terminator movies from the bad by whether they are about um, that being completely inevitable, like Salvation when it already that's happened, a great or point. Rise yeah. of the Machines when you know the entire point was no, it was going to happen one way or the other. Um, <laughs> versus so that's
2: a great point. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah, because it does feel like the message should be the sort of like we can do something about this. Let's do yeah. something about it. Yeah.
1: So, one kind of little random question I I just suddenly thought of is, like, so, if we think about, like, the the iconic, I guess, lines of science fiction, which, again, strongly map onto Star Wars and Alien and this, it's very more, so, if Star Wars basically has the big one line of, like, I am your father, right, like, that's the big line (laughs) of Star Wars that, even if you've never seen one of the movies, you know that that's oh, yeah. a Star Wars line. I yeah. feel like Terminator has, like, an inordinate amount of lines that people know, right? That oh, we yes, have a, it Vista, I'll be back, come with me come if you want to live. Come with me if you want
0: to live. Yeah.
1: Um, I feel like there's an inordinate amount, which, unfortunately for Arnold, got way too attached to him, and, like, he, you know, he could be doing, like, he could be doing, like a Christmas carol or something. And he as Scrooge would turn to the camera and be like, I'll be back yeah, to yes. <laughs> bring you a goose, you know, or something yeah. like, like he would like, cause it's just such a part of who, of who he is and like how he like, and, like, and his like, you know, persona outside, even at the franchise. Um, but real quick, before we move on to recommendations, what, what do y'all think of, um, basically Terminator's influence, on culture at large how do we interact with it the one like my brother um is a uh is the uh, cto of a tech startup and they do artificial intelligence hmm. um they're working on something to basically like like artificial intelligence and like restaurant ordering something like that and so every time he tells somebody this they're like so you're creating skynet like every time and he's just kind of like yeah 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 you're super original um but like (laughs) that's just like a thing right that we're aware of what are some of the ways that we feel like that terminator has like permeated general pop culture
0: i think that it's it's made us you know eternally inevitably skeptical of artificial intelligence right And, and really made us ask uh the question of can we actually make something that we can't even control? And, you know, uh, you might even say um, we we've, we've already kind of done that with the nuclear bomb, which is basically a bomb so powerful you don't need it. <laughs> uh, and it's 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 interesting. It's, it's kind of worth asking, has this film or, or films even in this genre um, been able to sort of sway how we have wanted to develop our technology or anything like that, but yeah, that that's ob- you know, sort of the obvious answer is just who who really wants? And I almost want to say who really wants uh, artificial intelligence when we know that a possibility is the Terminator.
2: Yeah, and of course this this question goes way back, and it was raised by Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, which is a text I've known taught a lot about. We
1: and, also did a podcast over that one too, Christina. Yeah,
2: did we? Okay, yeah, we um, adi- when we uh, did the, the
1: Frankenstein movie. Oh, right. The
2: movie. Right. Well, anyway, um, but now with the new technologies, there's always a new twist to it, right? Um, What is the new technology going to do to our ability to destroy ourselves? How is that going to to look? And so I generally think it's a good idea to have these films that are kind of making us a little less optimistic, uh, sort of. Most people who do technology and AI just always think about the good effects of it. And yeah, there can be that sort of joke about this is Skynet, but most of the people who actually work in technology, they don't think about negative um, uh, consequences of this. And so fiction is that one area where we can actually think. Now, I mean, it's obviously unrealistic that just because a machine would become self aware that it would want to destroy people. But the fact of thinking about negative consequences.
0: So, Christina, if I might draw from another franchise, it sounds like you're saying that a lot of people are so interested in whether they could, they never stop to think about whether they should. Precisely. I mean, I've written a lot of
2: (laughs) stuff. I've written a book about this, right? Technology.
0: Which is, of course, Jurassic Park.
2: Right, yeah. And everything that Michael Crichton has written is exactly that. Just because we can do it, should we do it? Yeah. what would happen if we lost control of this and the unintended consequences of all of our leanings and our reachings, right. Is mm-hmm. something that I think we need to keep in the forefront of our consciousness. And if we don't, it's to our detriment. All
0: right. Yeah.
1: Well, that sounds like a uh, good place uh, to kind of wrap up our uh, discussion. And um, let's move on to our uh, recommendations. Uh, Blake, why don't you go first? Okay.
0: Um, I am a, a big gamer, so I love sort of post-apocalyptic video games. Um, and I just bought for myself a, a very highly lauded video game called The Last of Us. And it's, it's kind of a slightly similar plot to uh, Terminator. An, an older man and a young woman are traveling across the country um, because she is immune to this uh, virus or this sort of fungus that has uh, completely almost destroyed the human population and uh, turned people into monsters um, with fungus growing out of their heads that attack on sight and kill most everybody. And it's got that – similar idea of we have to protect this person because this person might hold the key to the future feel to it. And uh, I'll tell you this, it's won a hundred or so game of the year awards and been praised for its narrative. And uh, before I bought a console that could actually play the game, I went online and you can go on YouTube and watch somebody play it without talking um about it just you know watch the game be played from beginning to end and honestly i recommend that because the story is that incredible uh, the game is called the last of us and i'm very much looking forward to playing it
1: <laughs> awesome all right what about you christina
2: Ooh, i really want to do a, that game uh, sarah you like games too right wow i'm like i do that sounds really exciting um i am going to i have so many recommendations in this area but i want to recommend Terminator 3, which is often not seen as a very good film, but I really liked it. And part of the reason is because they had this female Terminator for the first time, and the actress who plays her is amazing. And you can see it on Netflix right now. It's streaming on Netflix right now. And Claire Danes is in it. I don't know how they got Claire Danes. Claire Danes is an amazing actress, and she does a really great job in the film. And there are so many interesting Different little things going on in that, and I think it's a highly underrated film. Plus, if you get the bonus pieces, you will have you will have Arnold Schwarzenegger talking, who was governor of California at the time, talking over the time when she takes out the policeman. Do you remember this? And she looks at the I do, I yeah. Know, looks at the Victoria's <laughs> Secret ad, and and oh my gosh, you have to hear my husband imitate an Arnold Schwarzenegger because it's like <laughs> the scene with the big breast is fantastic. <laughs> the inflation of the breast. You know, it's just like, yeah. and he goes, and you see everyone in Hollywood going, I wonder where you get that done. Uh, <laughs> to inflate one breast, because, uh, you know, some guys like them bigger and some guys smaller, and you can do both simultaneously. <laughs> just like, it's unbelievable. So you have to see that. So I recommend that. And I also recommend um, Dark Fate, the new uh, James Cameron Terminator film. And unfortunately, it just didn't get the publicity, the right. people coming out to see it that it should have gotten. It's it a good, good. film. It was good. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, I am going to recommend uh, the Ghost in the Shell anime series. Um, there is a original movie that we have an episode about, but uh, I'm specifically, specifically going to recommend the uh, first um, anime series, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. And this is a world that has had a nuclear war. It is a future filled with cyborgs. Of varying degrees to the point where uh, full humans, uh, no modifications, are actually uh, quite rare. And that how, and it uh, goes into lots of detail about essentially the problems and benefits that not necessarily AI, but our connectedness and our um, technology can provide for us, and how that in many ways it actually makes our lives more disconnected and more lonely, which is a thing I think that. We uh, many people are finally beginning to experience. So, Yeah, it's a
2: good series.
1: Well, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at network. And check out show notes from this and our other episodes on the Christian Humanist blog at ChristianHumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Chris- Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Christina Bieberlake and Blake Miller, I'm Sarah Kluester. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.